1: to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Yo, technology, what is it all about? I'm spending all this time in Indonesia and other places where there's 10 feet of rainfall a year and nothing to drink. I'm living in the Sonoran Desert where water stress is driven by water scarcity. They're fundamentally different problems, and yet there's commonality. And so it was like, oh, wait a minute okay, no, really, water is humanity's greatest problem. Could we apply renewables principles to this problem? And that, that sort of was the aha, if there was one.
1: Hello, and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech, how are you doing? This week, I'm not going to lie, we have a fabulous show. I don't know, say that all the time, but that's because I believe it. But also, this one I think is really, really, really interesting, and it's all about water, H2O. Um, So I'm not sure if you were, climate change, bad. You know, the, the effects of it are becoming more and more real as we have discussed many times in this pod before. For example, in the American West, the Colorado River, which is a primary source of water for more than 40 million people in America, so about 15% of the US population, is now under water restriction for the first time ever because of mega drought in the American West. We all know the horrendous story of Flint, Michigan and its poisonous drinking water and how climate change generally is just drying out lakes and rivers around the world or flooding them, overloading water infrastructure and rendering you know, water undrinkable, et cetera. This week's guest has a pretty wild solution to the whole water thing. And his name is Cody Friesen. He is the founder of a company called Source Water. And they have invented a new way to get an endless supply of drinking water from thin air. It sounds fantastical, but it's true. So this is how it works. They have a solar panel, which powers a fan that pulls in air. And ambient air, of course, has small amounts of water vapor just floating around so when the water is pulled in it's sucked into like a sponge like material inside the panel and then once it's there it's evaporated like dew you know on morning leaves and so it goes and collects and collects and collects and you're talking about I think it's I think the, the amount of something like six liters a day from a panel in any event the company this summer raised 130 million dollars its panels are in 50 countries and Cody, who's a professor at uh, Arizona State University, rec- reckons that the company is on a path to make this cheap enough where you can just throw a couple, a few of these panels on your roof and have enough water to drink and cook with um, at a cost that is cheaper or kind of equal to typical water bills you know, for the whole family. So obviously, the utility of the system in the developing world is very clear because it's completely closed-loop, off-grid. So you just have kind of... You know, you, put, you install it and you have water for people where, you know, otherwise they might spend hours going to a well, etc. And the company's been working on this for something like eight years, really perfecting it, bringing costs down, increasing efficiency, etc. And I just think it's a fascinating use case of solar power. And it gets again to this idea of kind of decentralizing some of these technologies that are coming there, decentralizing kind of large factory type or centralized infrastructure Functions and bringing them into the home or bringing them kind of to the personal level. And I just think it's a really interesting case of this. And again, water, I think, is going to become an increasingly um, fraught issue as climate change continues to kind of change the way kind of, you know, natural ecosystems, which we have come to rely on how they work and how they don't work so anyhow we talked to cody about all of that how he got into this how he came up with the idea and the kind of long winding road to getting to this place now it's fascinating i think you're really going to enjoy this one so i'm going to stop talking and hand it over to my discussion with cody freeson the founder and ceo of source water enjoy I feel like it's what you guys are doing is more and more relevant as kind of climate change happens and things are breaking down and kind of, I just think it's a really interesting slash scary time and what you guys are doing is really interesting. So as you said, weeds met first five years ago, which is crazy. Um, but it would be great if we could just kind of talk about what you guys are up to and what's happened over the past five years because most people will probably not have heard of you and or kind of understand what exactly you guys are doing or how this all works. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, you know, it's interesting, as you said, Danny, you know, the, nobody was talking about water seven or eight years ago. Right. And I founded this company incorporated it at end of 2014 and we closed our series A financing in May of 2015. Right. So let's call that seven plus years since we began operations. And before that had been a, a research project inside of my, my research group. And the sense at the time that I had was that you know, a few years before that, I'd been serving on the U.S. Manufacturing Council during the Obama administration as the co-chair of the Energy Subcommittee. So we were spending a lot of time thinking about the cost structure of solar and where it was headed, the cost structure of lithium-ion and where it was headed. And you know, we had all this data and it's still a sort of log linear, right? So solar has been on a 28% learning rate curve lithium ion for 30 years has been on a 22 percent when you say 28 and 22 percent is that
1: just cost coming down basically
0: yeah compounding uh, cost cost down yeah right? so that means 28 percent pi- reduction in cost year over year which of course we're going through a blip right now because of global supply chain disruption but that's really a shock right I think we'll we'll stay on that trajectory yeah and for solar it's been that way for 50 or 60 years right it's been that way a long time. So on the Manufacturing Council, we were able to sort of point out that you know, by the time we got to, let's say 2015, 2016, solar was going to be cheaper than coal and you know, that, that that was going to be a big disruption, which of course has happened and it is a big disruption and those are scaling, right? And you know, of course, Gene Bernachevsky's company, Sela, is right in the vein of being part of that cost performance curve of, of lithium ion. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next right, which these things are always sort of decade plus bets, if you're an innovator entrepreneur, sort of thinking about hard problems. And so I sort of, at that time, sort of knew, like, okay, solar has won, electrify everything has won, that's what we would call it today, right, electrify everything, but we didn't have that verbiage yet, but that's, it was clear that that was going to win. And so just sort of thinking about the amount of energy that went into that problem statement around how could we move from... You know, dino juice onto sunlight for our electricity. Yeah. So now the question would become okay, well, beyond electricity, right, which is a fraction of the total global greenhouse gas emissions, how do we move into a more renewable space with respect to all the other resources, right? So obviously, ag, and of course, now transportation, and water, and uh, fertilizer, and other things. And of those things, the biggest problem facing humanity, of course, is good drinking water. And so it's just literally the the question of could we do for water what solar did for electricity, and not knowing yet how, but just using the principles of renewables. Right, number one being free feedstock. Right, feedstock being sunlight, and that ultimately resulted in you know what is in, now referred to as source hydro panels. So, can you briefly explain?
1: how a solar panel makes water mm. mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> because it's like, it's, you know, as you say, I think people are kind of uh, to one degree or another waking up to this idea that like renewable energy is kind of has is coming of age, but also it's probably worth talking about just where we are. Cause a lot of our listeners are in Europe or in the UK where energy prices are now 10 X what they were a year ago it's like a national crisis in britain and a european crisis across the continent because everybody's like oh my goodness and a lot of people are saying well this is partially to blame this on the push for renewables which personally i don't think is the right scapegoat here i mean prices are high because natural gas is high but it's also the the kind of the messy transition from as you say dino juice to the sun or to the wind or plus batteries or whatever. But I think it's an interesting time just in terms of that transition, because same here in California, there's so much debate about our energy bills and renewables are getting blamed. And I'd love to get your take on that, but also before or after, just explain how you turn sunlight into
0: water. Yeah, so I'll, <laughs> I'll take the, the sort of societal element first, I guess. Yeah. What's so interesting is, is humans, we tend to sort of think about what's hitting our pocketbook now Mm -hmm. and that things sort of change over time in a smooth fashion. And I think the thing that the last couple of years has shown all of us is that the world is often moves in a smooth way until it doesn't. And then it comes in a series of shocks. And I don't know if the last two years is the most shocks that we've seen in the last 50, (laughs) but it sure feels like it, right? Obviously, Yeah, yeah. Uh, The global pandemic. But you think about all of the shocks associated with supply chain, the shocks associated with the war in Ukraine, the shocks associated with decisions around nuclear power plants and in Germany. You know, so all of these things, they they don't have a confined impact. They sort of have this rippling out effect. So it's, it's like you drop one pebble in, in the pond and you can see a sort of like very natural set of pebbles, but if you, you know, pack a dump truck up to the pond and you dump it in, all chaos breaks loose. And so I'm sort of super sympathetic to the sensation of an individual person or a group of people who are saying, oh my goodness, you know, my electricity prices have gone up, you know, 10, energy prices have gone up 10X over the last year.
1: Yeah. The kind of the saying right now in in the UK is like, there's a lot of people that are going to have to choose between heating and eating. Yeah, which is kind of as winter approaches, which is that's obviously is about as real as it gets.
0: It is real as real as it gets, right? And and obviously the UK needs to figure out probably from the government perspective how they're going to support and subsidize. Yeah, yeah. But separately, the, the other thing that's true is that the volatility that we're all experiencing today is part and parcel to being tied to diamond Juice and being tied to these issues that are happening in far-flung places that are then having that ripple effect come through, right? It's the dump truck is being dumped in the pond and, you know, we're experiencing all of those waves combined. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's fundamentally true about renewable electricity is that it's local, it's distributed, right. And intrinsically smoother than anything where you're burning, Mm. burning a, a, you know, a fossil fuel with respect to renewable water, before I get into how source works, most of our projects, you know, let's say more than 80% of our projects are in places where the infrastructure has failed, where the wells ran dry, where climate change has caused the water table to go saline, you know, those sorts of things. And so what we do is we end up driving a huge amount of resilience into those communities by putting in a fully infrastructure-free array of hydro panels that provides water independent of everything else that's going on around the, in the world, external to that site, right? So it's, it really is ultimately about resilience in in that, in that way. To your question about how source works, there's sort of two resources that matter for source. One is obviously sunlight. And if you want to think sort of rough numbers at high noon, at a reasonable latitude, you're talking about sort of one to 1.2 kilowatts of solar insulation per square meter. So it's a huge amount of power that's being sort of dispensed onto, onto the earth. And the other resource is that in the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere, there's one times 10 to the 16 kilograms of water vapor in the air. So that's one and then 16 zeros, kilograms of water vapor. And that amount of water is six times all of the earth's rivers combined. Okay, That water is fully replaced by the action of the sun over the oceans every seven to nine days. So if you're a water molecule that got evaporated off the Pacific Ocean a week ago, you're raining down somewhere over land, and so that is sort of an ultimate, let's say, atmospheric ocean that's ubiquitously available everywhere.
1: And now that troposphere, what is the troposphere?
0: Yeah, the lower part of the atmosphere, basically where we live, right the 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 part that that is relevant to to humans. Okay, got you. And so the thought that we had was, okay, if we could take that vapor resource and turn that into liquid in a very efficient way using only sunlight in principle you could have a a solution that could provide drinking water literally anywhere on the planet and so we set about that conception and there's many ways to skin this cat, but the way that turned out to be most efficient and also happens i'm a material scientist happen to be aligned with what i do is that we take a hygroscopic material, an engineered material that takes water vapor from the air at a very high rate and does so passively like a sponge. And it concentrates the water vapor from the air about 10,000 times by volume. The sort of experience that you have in your life that, that, you know, where where you've seen this is, of course, if you leave a lid off a sugar bowl, the sugar gets a little clumpy. And it does that because the water vapor is being absorbed into the sugar. It's the same reason why you don't go jogging in a cotton shirt. It's so hygroscopic; it just can sort of stay damp. And so that sort of table stakes is to have a, a material that we can concentrate that water vapor. We then expose those materials to sunlight, causing the water vapor to respire back out inside the hydropanel, creating a dew point inside the hydropanel that's above ambient, the ambient temperature, mm-hmm. which is sort of the same condition as when you walk out of your home in the morning and sometimes there's dew on leaves. What has happened overnight is that the dew point went above ambient and you got condensation on those leaves and so in both of those two things sort of nature-inspired solutions right we're concentrating water vapor passively we're using sunlight sunlight to respire that water vapor back out in a way that creates a, a condition that results in condensation and so it's almost like a distillation process so we end up with pure water that we then ozonate Basically, apply ozone. That we take O2 from the air, we make O3, and we put that in the water inside the hydro panel to ensure that it stays sterile. And then we mineralize it so that it has the right taste and health profile. So, what we really are able to do inside of every hydro panel is create effectively a small artesian well, <laughs> right? And so, uh, when we go into you know an indigenous community in Australia, as an example, you know we put in an array that's matched the size of that community or you know, an array on top of a school in South Africa that matches the size of that school. And it is effectively like having a perfect artesian well now in that community or at that school. And that magic, of course, there's like several layers of IP below that, that make it, Yeah, yeah. it's a little yeah. more complicated than I described, but the physics are what I just said. And so by approaching the problem in that way, we're not only able to make liquid water from very dry environments. I'm sitting in Scottsdale, Arizona, which Right now outside is probably 5% relative humidity. The panels sitting at my home and on the roof above me are making water, right? And so that's obviously a big unlock. The other element is that, as I said, you know, so we have, if you ever look at the front of a source hydro panel, you sort of see a fraction of it is a solar PV module. And that PV module is making on the order of hundred watts. And that's used to run the electronics, the communications, every hydropanel is connected to the clouds. We can see we're, that we're doing what we say we're doing. The fans and some other control points, and then the rest of the front of the hydropanel panel is directly associated with allowing sunlight to come in and impinge on those materials to drive this process. So that part of the process is very high efficiency, and we know that solar PV is, you know, come, let's call it 17 to 20 percent efficient. And so the combination of those two things make make for a very power dense and high efficiency device. What is the sponge? What is it made of? Yeah, so they're proprietary materials, but what I can say is that they're earth abundant and food grade. It's two two important factors. Got you. And the sort of the key here is not how complicated can we make the material science to get the greatest performance, but rather the Goldilocks. How do we take an earth abundant set of materials that are go through an engineer an engineered process so they're sort of processed in a certain way that enables them to be good enough to do the process, mm. as opposed to, you know, having this Uber material that is wrung out to the ninth degree to make it super, super efficient and yet is very expensive. And so, you know, as we think about the future of where Source goes or Source as a company goes and where source hydropanels evolve, such a huge part of our next handful of years is taking this hydro panel and putting it on a cost performance curve. So since the founding of the company, I've been at 37%. We've been at 37% learning rate. Uh, So, you know, really, really fast learning rate.
1: In terms of that same kind of cost reduction curve.
0: Exactly, that cost performance curve. Right. And if we can stay even within a factor of two of that number, that ends up causing us to cross through the cost of what you pay to flush your toilet in Oakland in about seven years. Wow. So you think about the cost structure of the water from source, which, you know, if you go back... 15 years, you know, you can think of all the different ways that one could argue that PV will never be cheaper than, let's say, coal. But if you look at the fundamentals, you see how it's inevitable. And in a lot of ways, that's applicable here with source. And so there's a ton of work going in now to, you know, how does this scale to, you know, tens of thousands of panels a year? How does it scale to millions, tens of millions of panels a year? Mm. And What does that cost structure imply about? the future of our world and the built environment? And what does it imply for you know, women and girls who are spending 200 million hours a day fetching water? Or what does it imply for, right now, the official number is you know, 2.4 billion people that don't have safe water at their home. But if you spent time in Mumbai or Mexico City or Jakarta, you know that it's probably more like 4 billion people, maybe 50% of the planet doesn't have safe water at their home. Totally. And so how do we, back to the resilience and adaptation point, how do we take the best parts of our brain trust that are focused on a whole range of things and go create technological solutions to some of our biggest problems in a way that enables humanity to live an actual self-actualized life, like many of the, us in the, in the you know, wealthy parts of the world, but in an bro- ever broader way in the context of climate change? and there's many many layers to that kind of to unpack there but there's a demand that we need to get after it because we're just too slow on climate action
1: speaking of that cost curve i was noodling around on your website before we got on so is it is it roughly still six grand for two panels or one panel is that right roughly
0: yeah so that's two panels shipped and installed and that's sort of a u.s one-off residential type solution right where the the real cost of that is unrelated to the panel itself and obviously related to the integration and so on. So Got the cost that we transfer into our water service projects or our larger government projects is substantially lower. However, let's just say for rough numbers that a source hydro panel is within a factor of two of a thousand dollars up or down. Let's just say for round numbers. Yeah. A natural question is, what would the performance need to be? And what would the cost need to be in order for that quotient to be water that's not dissimilar cost to what you flush your toilet with at home which u.s average is about 0.4 cents a liter in your rate base but in your total tax tax base you pay more like one to 1.2 cents a liter so um and today that quotient for us is like six cents so you could imagine that we increase the performance by a factor of two or three from here and that you know some number of years out and we're building millions of these a year they maybe we're costing, let's say, two hundred and fifty or three hundred dollars. Let's say that quotient suddenly in a twenty-five-year device is cheaper than what you're, you're flushing a toilet with at home, and in what you is delivered to you. The primary point I'm making is that the cost structure of where source ultimately goes fundamentally changes how we think about water infrastructure going forward and water democratization going forward. They'll never build telephone wires across the continent of Africa. No. They got the benefit of being late, where now, of course, there are six billion plus smartphones around the world. There's no reason to build that infrastructure going forward. Uh, I think there are there's many opportunities to think about multiple different resources, let's just saying in the context of water, in a different way that is distributed and much more resilient than what we've done in the past.
1: And on that curve of increasing kind of efficiency, et cetera. Is there a clear path there? Because I know obviously solar is much better than it used to be because materials got better. We've gotten better at producing them for cheaper, et cetera. But is there, because I think, again, I was looking on your website and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like six, six liters a day per panel at the moment. Is that right? Yeah. Is there a world where you're like, can two X or three X that where you're like, cause six liters I mean, given that it's coming from thin air, that's really impressive. But in terms of like, I don't know, like a family, they're going to need more than that, obviously.
0: So the short answer is yes. There's quite a bit more headroom in the thermodynamics from where we're at today. Right. The sort of the limit, if you want, is if we take the sort of typical solar insulation per square meter, you know, something like six to seven kilowatt hours per square meter, you know, on on a sunny day the size of a current source panel is, is just shy of three square meters. If you divide that through by the heat of vaporization or the, the full free energy of, of vaporization, it's about 640 watt hours per liter. So that quotient is about, kind between 32 and 35 liters per that three square meters. And that of course would be unachievable. That's 100% efficiency. But can we get within a factor of two of that over the years? Probably, possibly. And so that sort of, that gives you an idea of sort of what I think is the upper limit, maybe, you know, 15-ish liters per panel. There may be some tricks that we can play along the, those lines, but that's, that's the, rough, the rough numbers.
1: I want to talk about the company a bit, because as you say, when you started this back in 2014, 2015, you know, everybody was talking about climate change, but it's not, wasn't as visceral as it is now. When you, especially you're in Arizona, I think you're probably downstream of the Colorado River which is being rationed for the first time in a century. And I don't think we've fully seen the implications of what that means when you're talking about 40 million people who rely on that one river for agriculture, for their own water, et cetera. What is your sense when you're talking to kind of business people, investors, people who are like thinking about these things also, not only as an kind of an imperative to figure out, but also as an opportunity, as a business opportunity. What's the kind of, I'm just interested to see your what your sense is of the evolution of the thinking amongst the people who have the money to, to back this stuff.
0: It's day and night from where it was seven years ago mm. and nobody was talking about these issues. And now Lake Powell, which is one of the largest reservoirs in the world. And, you know, sort of fractal, if you look at a, a map of Lake Powell, it has more coastline than the whole West coast of the United States. What? And yet it evaporates 800,000 acre feet a year which is a huge fraction of what LA uses. And it's now at only like 20% full. And of course that's upstream from Lake Mead, which is one that has most of the, the news around it because that's sort of uh, the place that serves the re- as a reservoir to LA. But upstream of that is already a lake that's, you know, for lack of a better term, dying in the sense that it's, it's almost empty. But that means that the states that are in the Colorado River Pact and are early on in learning about how to operate in, in, in the future, into the future. What it means for us as a company, that this is the core of your question, is that you know we just raised another financing earlier this year, over $130 million. That takes our total raised over the last seven years to uh, $270 million, which in some ways is I don't know if it's the most that's ever been invested into a water technology company the private water technology company, but it's certainly, you know, a large amount. Yeah. And that's because ultimately the recognition by a lot of really smart people that we need a different set of solutions for water going into the future. And they are all conversant in the why now behind why renewables are winning. Right. And so when you think about like BlackRock coming in, or harvard's endowment harvard's management company coming in or duke energy right one of the largest utilities united states or breakthrough energy ventures right large climate investor uh drawdown fund fifth wall which is all a bunch of real estate development limited partners in that fund all of those went through their own analyses looking at water through their own lenses you know and microsoft came as well microsoft climate investment fund and recognizing that as they go forward, they just are not solutions to the problems that they are particularly facing. And at the same time, we are now installed in over 52 countries, completed over 450 projects across everything from high end hotels to communities in need to individual homes and so on. Mm. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how source ultimately is a generationally important company, and so that that sort of drove this this financing in a way that that was different than the previous financings we've done, uh, earlier financings, where the two factors of the clarity around and the ability to articulate what renewables were able to achieve, combined with the articulation and recognition of water stress going into the future, and that you know all of our water infrastructure along the colorado river basin is built off of a set of analyses and assumptions that were some of the wettest decades in the last thousand and we're moving into some of the driest decades uh over the last several thousand
1: right so when you started and you try to raise your first round of funding were people looking at you like you're the dude shaking your fist at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, because as I say, it's like, I think about this, this often, um, the kind of, as I mentioned before, like the visceral arrival of climate change in different parts of the world. And in the Bay Area, it was the last few years with the really bad fire seasons. And all of a sudden people like waking up and the sky is orange and the kids can't go outside. And it's like, oh, like the number of people I've spoken to who kind of had a, this moment of conversion almost where it's like, this is different yeah. and this feels very scary and very urgent in a way that didn't before even it was more, it was like theoretical and it moved to the the kind of visceral or real. How was the initial kind of reception to your idea? Was it that was the classic like, yeah, cool, cool. No, thanks.
0: Yeah. What's interesting is we, the series A was pretty heavily competed and I ended up selecting a firm called Three by Five Partners out of out of Portland that is really strongly values aligned to what, you know, what we were trying to do. And at the same time, as I was able to, you know, secure several term sheets that were sort of competing, most of my friends, entrepreneurial friends were saying, don't go down this path. <laughs> There's nothing sexy or cool about water, right? Totally. And my constant drumbeat was, well, it's, It is water, but it's really not. It's renewable energy where the vector is set of electrons is clean water. And that that has more intrinsic value per unit of energy than the electrons that are ephemeral and you have to put them somewhere or you have to put them in a battery, right? Use them or put them in a battery. And so the shaping of the startup really is built off of my background in the renewable space right, over the last couple decades. And at the same time, in contrast to what I found lacking working in the renewable space. Right? I think most people get in the renewable space because they see a set of problems that are global in scope and the opportunity to be a part of solving these problems but what I found lacking is that the solutions are also, you know, the, the, the solutions are industrial in scale. And what I really fell in love with with respect to what became source was the opportunity to work on a problem that was global in scope, but human in scale. Meaning that drinking water is humanity's greatest problem, right? One person dies in water bottle minutes every 10 seconds around the world. And there needs to be a renewable solution to that. There needs to be a sustainable, ubiquitous, globally deployable solution to that problem. And that I thought we could do it. And I thought we could we could arrive at a solution that was that. And I think we've proven that that's true.
1: How much harder was
0: it than you expected? <laughs> um, it continues to be far harder than I expected. <laughs> um, and you know, trying to change the world is not an easy thing. But it's also the skill sets. You know, I joke around. This is like, oh, this like today's whatever fill in the blank of some challenge. This is the 723rd reason why I went and got my PhD from MIT. Right? It's like <laughs> unrelated entirely to what you know my yeah. education was in in terms of running a company, but it's also sort of that that critical thinking around how do we solve this problem in a way that's right down in the weeds, solutioning the problem, whatever that happens to be for the day, but also making sure that we're always looking over the hedgerow at what we're trying to do and. This is one of those problems that's fun to put your shoes on for. Like, this is one that, you know, every week there's another set of images from like, yet another village, another community, another homeowner who has gotten source. And, you know, we've changed their lives because they were fetching water or buying plastic bottled water or, or, or filling the blank. Um, and so the the counterbalance to the difficulty is the impact we're having, which is cool. And it's not in some report we publish at the end of the year. Well, it is also that. <laughs> but it's also in the every single day what we, we show up and, and, and work towards. And so, yes, it's hard.
1: Well, I usually do this like much closer to the beginning, which is like getting the kind of the person's backstory and how you ended up here. But I've just... I've left this kind of more toward the end because I find what the technology itself so fascinating. But how did you end up doing this? Because this feels like, I mean, if you just step back and say, okay, I'm basically going to kind of create a well out of thin air powered by solar. It just feels like kind of a crazy thing. But I don't know if you like grew up in an entrepreneurial household or it was just like the path you took from. Scientific inquiry to this is possible. To let's make this possible. Like, how did you get here?
0: Yeah, I wish it was like the the really linear path where it was like, oh yeah, this this box is checked, and <laughs> that box is checked. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Um, so I grew up in Arizona. I grew up in the sort of in a agricultural area, surrounded by cotton fields and citrus groves, and of course, those things require a lot of water, and so that area would be flood irrigated for multiple months of the year. And yet when we'd go on hikes, you know, with my dad or with friends or whatever in the desert, almost always you would walk to a spring coming out of the rock in the middle of Sonoran Desert and a trickle of water would result in these huge cottonwoods and, you know, cattails and birds and all sorts of things. And so at the same time, I was sort of very much into science as a kid and and innovation and, you know, filling up notebooks of ideas and whatever else. And I always just not ever thinking about solutions, but that juxtaposition of living in a place where there's so much water where I live, and yet when you get outside of town, all of a sudden there's no water. And so what gives, right? And of course, I didn't appreciate at that time that the hohogam, the uh, some of the first peoples here in the in the valley, dug twenty thousand kilometers of canals. Wow, uh, and you know, all of that farming was just concreted inversions of those canals. And the recognition now, looking back, that the history of this place is predicated on water.
1: Because it's hot as all get out where you are, generally speaking.
0: Hot as all get outs, so, almost the exact same words we use, but maybe without the G rating. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, you know, four months of the year, it's just hot. You know, 110, 115 degrees Fahrenheit is not not uncommon through the summer. And so I went to ASU and got a material science undergraduate degree. And then I went to MIT and got my PhD. And it's really thinking about renewable energy and batteries, energy storage, and catalysis and things that were related to you know the conversion of chemical en- energy to electrical energy. And I was lucky enough to come back to ASU as a junior faculty uh, in 2004. And Michael Crow, who's the current president of the university, he started recruiting me back in 03, talking about something that maybe your audience has heard before, but something called translational research. So much about academia, Danny, is in the ivory tower, you do research, you publish a paper, it gets put on the shelf. If other people cite that paper, uh, you can become well known. And it's all about sort of fiefdom building. That's the end goal but if you take broad strokes, right, academia is about two things, new knowledge creation and knowledge transfer, right? New knowledge creation being research and, and so on, and knowledge transfer being teaching and publishing. Yeah. But as Michael is articulating this sort of uh, translational research idea, and one of the reasons I came to ASU as a, as a junior faculty is the idea of broadening that definition to say, well, new knowledge creation can actually be about doing research that's trying to solve some of the hardest problems on the planet. And then knowledge transfer can be about scaling those solutions and actually solving the problems. That's a different kind of academic. I'm a little different kind of academic. And so as I built my first company, Fluidic, and it's a, it was a battery company that we took global and eventually sold. So you built a company before, a battery company. What type of
1: battery was it or what were the batteries for? Yeah, the
0: world's first uh, high-cycle life rechargeable metal air batteries. So very, very low cost batteries for energy, for stationary energy storage. That capability really unlocked a whole different set of applications for batteries at that time. And now, of course, lithium mine batteries are getting ever cheaper. So they're starting to find themselves into ever lower cost type, uh, energy storage applications that were historically, you know, lead acid batteries and diesel generators. And then at the same time I was serving on the us manufacturing council and it was this sort of aha moment of, wait a minute. I'm spending all this time in Indonesia and other places where there's 10 feet of rainfall a year and nothing to drink. I'm living in uh, the Sonoran Desert where water stress is driven by water scarcity. There's fundamentally different problems. And yet there's commonality. Then, you know, you think about like Flint and, you know, Flint is one of a dozen Flints a, a year that happened associated with the 1.5 million miles of lead pipes that are still in the ground in the US, right? And so it was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, no, really, water is humanity's greatest problem. Could we apply renewables principles to this problem? And that that sort of was the aha if there was one. And then we had no idea at the beginning how we were going to solve the problem, but we had the learnings from the renewable space. We had the learnings around, you know, materials properties and how to, to evolve those. And, you know, I thought based on my previous experiences building companies that you know, we might be able to build a, a company that could, you know, set out to change the world in a way that was possibly not just generationally important, but, but really lifting people up. And, you know, that's what I, or I get out of bed every morning. If water is the source of life, right. We are a ubiquitous source of safe water and that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what is source now? Like how many people are you and where are you on the kind of that scale up curve? Cause it feels like you have, I know you, it can get better and better, but it feels like you have cracked the core science. So now it's about improving that. But I feel like, I imagine there's a whole scale up aspect of
0: this, which is the next phase. Is that right? We're a couple hundred people now and growing. So anybody who wants to come work on, uh, what we're doing, Send Danny a note and then he'll send it to me. Yes, I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and yeah, I mean, now it really is about continuing to drive that flywheel, to continue to build momentum that enables cost down from the way that it's manufactured. And of course, uh, drive the R&D to, to continue to advance you know, kind of the performance. Beyond that, though, it's such a paradigm shift to think about water in the way that we do. And, and it changes water from the ultimate extractive resource, right, it's either in the ground, or it's not, or it's in the river, or it's not, yeah. to one that can be programmed, and one that can sort of enable people to step over infrastructure challenges. And so, you know, I think that that element is, you know, a continual process of education for the marketplace.
1: Is there an analog you use to to describe that kind of that shift? Is it that kind of the mobile phone kind of leapfrogging the fact that there was no, you know, thousands of miles of telephone cables laid in Africa? Or is there another example that you use to kind of illuminate what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the the mobile phone example is spot on. You know, imagine that you had a solar PV module that had somehow like an integrated battery so that it was just a, a firm source of electricity at all times. That's exactly the sources right we produce water and bed energy in that water and store it so on a stormy day, you still have water right and on a, on a sunny day, you, you see no difference between those those two days as a as an end user, and so you sort of think about the cost structure of smartphones over the last. I think the iPhone came out in 2007, is that right? Yeah, it did, yeah. But, you know, maybe they really, really got going in 2010. So, you know, we're only, you know, a dozen years into to really scaling smartphones. And previous to that, information poverty was a massive issue. And yet today, effectively, every human on the planet, save for some, very you know, challenged corners, have... 100% access to all of humanity's knowledge. And that's like a 95% good thing and maybe 5% challenged thing. There's you know, some problems there. <laughs> but overall, like if you were an information impoverished person, your life is just fundamentally different than it was a decade ago. And I can see the same thing happening in water.
1: To that exact point, you're one company doing something that's really hard and you've spent best part of a decade figuring it out. Is anybody else doing this, like, or something akin to this? Because it does feel like the potential obviously is vast, but also you're one startup in Arizona, yeah, you know, like, and this is to your point affects billions of people,
0: yeah. I mean, we we now have a robust global footprint, but so we're not just in Arizona, but we are just one company, right? And you're right that if you want to look at it from like a a business perspective. It's effectively an infinite market space, right? Nobody does precisely what we do. There's many people thinking about water in different ways. Yeah. And I think it's no different than electricity in this, in this case, right? There needs to be a potpourri of solutions, a mosaic of solutions in order to ultimately solve water. Our one particular solution fits a vast range of, of applications and, and challenges, but not, certainly not all, right? And certainly not even the majority. And so you sort of think about the investment that needs to go in to the space. It's a tiny fraction of what is in the space. And that's, that's true, both specifically with respect to investment dollars that flow into water technologies, specifically, and also more broadly, investment dollars that are going and development, finance, institution, money, et cetera, that are fl- it's flowing into adaptation versus mitigation. And that needs to be rebalanced as well. I'm sort of a big fan of reading about the various Native American populations over the years. And, you know, the Iroquois always had this mentality that the decisions that they make are for seven generations hence. And so why does it matter that the globe is warming? Why does it matter that we're destroying the ecosystem? Why does it Why do these things matter? The Earth's going to be fine with or without humanity. Our Seventh generation, hence grandchildren, are the critical factor, the thing that we need to build for. And so what kind of decisions are we making today about where money flows to go solve the right kinds of problems so that every future generation lives a better life than we did? Yeah, yeah. Where do you make these? Where are these produced? Yeah, so uh, global supply chain and assembled in Tempe, Arizona.
1: Okay, cool. Well, I wish you... All the luck. It's such a, as you say, it's a kind of, you know, it's like in Silicon Valley speak, your total addressable market is planet earth. So it feels like there's a lot to go for there, but um, yeah, I wish you more luck in addressing it. Cause obviously I think it's going to become more and more of an acute issue in really unexpected and probably scary ways. Yeah. Danny,
0: I think you just said it perfectly, you know, from a company perspective, from a business perspective, the huge Tam is wonderful from You know how we're trying to show up in the world. It's daunting. It's humbling. We have to get this right in a way that serves a very broad set of end users. So I don't take that lightly. You know, it's a it's a big responsibility for us, and to also prove that certain things are possible, so that more investment flows into the space. Well, I wish you luck. Thank you, and I appreciate you having me on. Um, You know, it's such a unique time, and I'm such a long term optimist. I know that we're going to get this climate thing nipped, and we're going to get this. Uh, you know this
1: global yeah.
0: water challenge nipped in the in the bud, but <laughs> in the near term, you, we also have to be not pessimists, but we have to really have our heads on a swivel, because there's a there's back to your earlier question, there will be continued shocks continuing, you know, well forever, but I think probably for the next you know year or two, it'll continue to be at a high volume. So how do we think about looking over the hedgerow to go solve some of our biggest problems? And I would say that that's you know kind of my my call to action to your your uh, audience. Let's get after it. And that is all the
1: time we have. I want to thank Cody for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening for the ratings, for the reviews. Uh, please take a moment if you haven't already, give a rating and review to the pod. It really does help other people find it. I know I keep saying that, but it's because it's true. And that's it for me this week. Please check out thetimes.co.uk. I'm writing stuff in there. You can check that out this weekend. And until next week, Stay safe. Stay sane. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.